Well, Emily, thanks so much for being with us today. I thought that we might start by talking a little bit about your home state. So your debut novel is titled Idaho. Uh, You grew up in Idaho. The novel Idaho itself is set in Idaho, and you now teach and live in Idaho. And so I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what Idaho has meant for you personally and biographically, and what has drawn you to it, what continues to draw you to it imaginatively. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I've always lived in Idaho, but when I was 12 years old, my family moved up to a mountain, a very remote mountain. There was no electricity, no running water, and we lived in tents on this mountain while my parents built the barn. And then when the barn was finished, we moved into the barn and lived there for a while with all of our animals. And then while while our house was being built. And so it was one of the most amazing times in my life to just to be so far removed from everything except the people that I loved most in the world. And it was beautiful and strange and also dangerous. There was this feeling of hostility everywhere except our sweet little 40 acres. So like, you know, we had a gate that said all of the you know, beware of dog, which we didn't, we didn't have a dog to beware of, but just, we had this, um, this gate with all of these no trespassing signs in order to fit in up there so that nobody would know that once you pass through this gate, it's just this wonderful, happy family. But all of the surrounding properties were, were quite hostile. Um, and, you know, we were robbed many times by our neighbors. And so I have a relationship with Idaho that is really complicated. I absolutely love it because of its strangeness and because it, you know, living in a, in such a beautiful place that was sort of surrounded by poison was so interesting. And I just, I would see things in the woods that I never really understood strange people and strange objects that I would find out there. And it just, I feel like my parents hadn't given me the gift of that mountain experience I would never have been able to write this book. So it's it, living up there really, really did form me. And um, I have a complicated relationship with Idaho, but I, I'm really grateful for the way it, it affected my imagination. Yeah. When you say strangeness, so you mean both a kind of natural strangeness because the, the novel really beautifully talks about the various sublime aspects of the Idaho landscape, both the plains and the mountains. But I take it you also mean kind of human strangeness, right? The strangeness of the community that you found yourself within. Yeah. Like, um, there in, out in the woods, I remember once when I was a little girl, I found a, an albino calf with its legs bound and it had been shot and it was just, it had just been dragged out into the middle of the woods or we would find, we found a, a moose without its head, you know, just awful things, really awful things that people were poaching up there. There was a remnants of a meth lab deep in the woods. I didn't find it, find it but someone in my family stumbled across it. And so the, just like hints of people doing things that they really should not be doing, this combined with, there, there were some really wonderful people that we knew on the mountain too, the uh, there were knife makers who lived up at the very top of the mountain, um, which is a strange thing to do with your life. But they, you know, they were wonderfully kind people, and they too were just surrounded by 
yeah, human strangeness. You know, I, I remember one time I was out on a walk and, you know, you never saw anybody ever when you were out on walks, except these very rare occasions. And one time I just saw this man and this young woman, and they were searching frantically for something. And I just had this terrible feeling. And I thought I've got to, I've got to get out of here. And I know, I don't know what they were searching for or if they ever found it, but there was like a desperation there. Um, well, I, I guess I could just go on and on with anecdotes of strangeness, but overall, it was it was an eerie, eerie and beautiful place to live, and I'm really drawn to that. Yeah, and you you talk there about some of the terrifying aspects of the lonesomeness and the aloneness of where you lived on the mountain, and I was wondering if we could talk about a different aspect of of lonesomeness. Um, so I know that. You have studied with Marilyn Robinson. She's another great Idaho writer. And she has this really lovely essay called When I Was a Child, in which she talks about growing up in the West generally, but growing up in Idaho specifically. And she says that one way that you can differentiate the West from the East, it seems, is that in the West, the word lonesome has uh, positive connotations. And she talked about being a child, and she says, I, I quote, I remember kneeling by a creek that spilled and pooled among rocks and among fallen trees with the unspeakably tender growth of small trees already sprouting from their backs and thinking there is only one thing wrong here, which is my own presence, and that is the slightest imaginable intrusion, feeling that my solitude, my loneliness made me almost acceptable in so sacred a place. And so there's this really beautiful play between loneliness and sacredness for Robinson. And in another essay, Psalm 8, she talks about feeling like a moat of exception in the Idaho wilderness and how that feeling was really one of the, the holiest feelings of her young life. And I'm wondering what role of lonesomeness or, or solitude or loneliness has played in your own career as a writer, in your own imagination. So, you know, what does the word lonesome or, or loneliness mean for you? And how does that relate to the project of writing? Because I can imagine one way we might think of it is that writing is a way of inhabiting loneliness. And then another way of thinking about it would be that writing is a way out of loneliness, right? You, you seek to link your loneliness up to other readers, um, other experiencers of lonesomeness. So yeah, what, what does lonesomeness mean to you as, as a writer? That, the quote that you read from Marilyn Robinson, it does speak directly to my heart. I loved being so far away and so far removed from everything. And I too treasured those times when it was just me in the wilderness. And the loneliness was definitely a, a positive thing. And I think it was crucial to me as I developed as a thinker and as a writer to just be alone in my life. I I've never really been lonely in the, in the negative sense. I always had my mom and dad and my brother and sisters, you know, always. And so there was also this, it was so meaningful to be removed from society and, and alone in the wilderness, but alone with my little brother and little sister. I think the way that we played as kids, and we played much longer than I think most kids play in this way, you know, just 
imagining just being different people. You know, I think I, I still played with dolls until I was 13 years old, 13 or 14, because I didn't know that was embarrassing, you know, and, and just to not really be aware, so aware of this, you know, standards that are set up for children everywhere else. I think that kind of play turned me into a storyteller. I think being alone is so crucial. And I, and I don't know, you know, it's, it's difficult to be alone nowadays, I think. Um, and I think striving to find a space in which there's, there's nobody but yourself is something that's very important. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the, how late, relatively speaking, you played with dolls. And that reminds me of a, a beautiful and kind of heartbreaking passage in the novel Idaho where, where June and, and May no longer play with dolls because the older sister has kind of come to the realization that she doesn't want to play with dolls with her sister. She still wants to play with them on her own. But I thought that might lead us into uh, talking about the, the novel itself for our listeners who haven't read the novel, first of all, I encourage you to. But second of all, I, I just want to warn that I think the novel has been out for almost two years now. So I think the statute of limitations on spoilers has expired. So I'm going to mention some things that actually happen in the novel. The novel in, in large part um, kind of grows out of an unthinkable and in certain ways an unrepresentable act so a mother named Jenny has been living a difficult but largely happy life with her two daughters, May and June, and her husband. You mentioned that you knew a, a knife maker. The, the main male character in the novel, Wade, is himself a knife maker, a knife maker. And they've been living in the mountains of Idaho. And then one day, um, kind of unexpectedly and unexplainably, Jenny kills her daughter, May, with an axe. And her other daughter, June, runs away. And this is, in every sense of the word, a gratuitous act. Jenny's a good mother. She loves her daughters. She loves Wade. And even in the context of senseless acts of violence, this seems particularly senseless. And by that, I mean kind of resistant to sense, mysterious or even unknowable. And I guess my, my question is kind of twofold. So first of all, the kind of obvious question, what drew you to putting this act of horrific and kind of unfathomable violence at the very center of your novel, what kinds of questions, whether they're moral questions or kind of representational questions, did it allow you to think through and, and make alive? And then, so that's the kind of positive question, why choose to write about this? And then the negative question would be, what were you worried about in, in making that choice? So what dangers in terms of craft or, or otherwise did making this act the center of your novel introduced for you? That's a, that's a wonderful question. I, I do think though, that it, to call it a choice is not quite right. I've answered this question in various ways before, but when I was, um, when the novel first came to me, it really was, I, I, I was out in the woods on a different mountain than my own. And I, I was gathering firewood with my family and I had the sense that this place where we were, uh, it's a place I can't get to again. I don't even know where it was. Um, but I, I felt this place inhabit me and I just felt something terrible happened here. And it, it's a feeling that I've never actually had again, you know, of um, not being haunted exactly. It, it was different than just being haunted by a place. It was what happened here. 
And so I was the the act of trying to figure out what that was, was the process of writing the novel. And so it, it was never like I decided I'm going to write a novel about a mother who kills her child. That seems it, it, it's a decision that was not really a decision. It was very separate of me. Um, and it's not something that I, I don't think I would have ever chosen to do, except that it, it just happened. But, you know, I think part of the reason that that's, that's the answer that I found, which, you know, of what happened here is because I've, I guess, uh, I've had this feeling most of my life at various points in my life, it's been a lot stronger of how do I know that I'm a good person? How do I know that I won't do something that will ruin my life? How do I know that I won't do something that will ruin somebody else's life? And when that occurs to me that we all have this agency, it's really terrifying. It's, it's paralyzing to me, you know, that you could, we all could do something completely outside of ourselves, something unthinkable, something terrible. And it's, it's the worst feeling and realization. And, you know, it, I've, I've really struggled with it at various points in my life. For a while, it was even a point of obsession is how, how do I know I'm not going to hurt somebody? Like I've never hurt somebody before. And I'm, I want to be a good person and I want so badly to be a good person, but how do I know that I'll never hurt someone? And so for Jenny to do something completely outside of herself without reason, it's the scariest thing I, I can imagine. It's, it's, it's the worst thing that I can imagine. And from that point of the worst thing that I can imagine, I wondered if I could find some kind of redemption and I did. I found that this woman who's capable of murder, of murder she does not understand, she's able to find friendship at some point. You know, when you think this person's life is over, there's no recovering from this act of evil. And, and she thinks that as well. Not not she, just we the yes. readers, but she thinks that's her, herself, yeah. Yeah, and she wants to die. She She wishes she could be sentenced to death because... She thinks that her her life is is over, and then for kindness to still be possible after that moment, that gives me a lot of hope. And you know, I think that it is. I don't think my novel is for everybody. I think it's there is a darkness in the novel that is. It's really hard. There's there's passages that I I will never ever read out loud because I couldn't. They they're too, they're too painful, and it was not a fun book to write in, in that sense. It's, it's very, you know, at the heart of it is a, is a, a murdered child and it's, it's awful. And it, it was really painful to write it. But ultimately I do feel very strongly that it's a love story and it's a story about the good things that we're capable of more than the bad things that we're capable of. And it's about love between husband and wife and sister and sister and even mother and child so I think that that's, you know, that's a, a fear that I had putting the book out into the world is, wow, Emily is a very dark person. And I'm really, <laughs> I'm really not. There's, you yeah, know, there's yeah. darkness in me like there is in anybody, but I really do believe in human kindness and compassion and salvation of that you're capable of being redeemed by, by kindness. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, you know, you're using those words, salvation and redeemed and, and the fear that you were talking about kind of haunting you that you might act in a way that is inexplicable to you, that would be harmful to others. 
in certain ways, I mean, this is a an absolutely American novel. I mean, it's an American landscape. They're American characters. But it reminded me, and, and I mean this as a deep compliment, it, it made me think of Russian fiction at various moments, in particular of Dostoevsky, because I think Dostoevsky is kind of similarly interested in those moments where something beyond reason or choice or agency takes us over in the fear that it, at some level we're, we're never completely in control of ourselves and our actions. And I think someone like Dostoevsky has an incredibly dark vision of human psychology, but also has a kind of deeply theological and redemptive vision of human existence. And I was thinking of Dostoevsky the whole time I was reading Idaho, which is kind of strange to think Dostoevsky transplanted to, you know, uh, the, the mountains of Idaho. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I really, I, I mean, I was struck by, it reminds me of Robinson in, in lots of ways. It reminds me of other kind of American writers of landscape in lots of ways. But I think the more like the dark, but also ultimately hopeful moral vision is like straight Russian for me. I don't I, I don't have like a, a good reason for saying that other than it just re- reminded me of it. But I think I mean, I think that's fascinating. And I'm not sure I have a lot to say about it, but I I really like your interpretation. OK, so then I thought we might think a little bit about structure because as I, as I mentioned, there's almost this black hole at the very center of the novel, this thing that can't be represented, that all the characters in various ways are both trying to think about and not think about. You, you decided upon this or found this really interesting kind of temporally jumbled structure in which you move back and forth in time quite consistently and, and quite dramatically. So we spend some time with Jenny and Wade during their courtship and their early marriage. Uh, we spend time with Wade and Anne, the woman he marries after Jenny goes to prison. We spend time with Jenny in prison, but none of it's structured chronologically. And it jumps backwards and forward and flashes in a way that to me resembled Alice Monroe, who I know is a writer uh, who's very important to you, that kind of dilation of time, that jumping forward in time and then jumping back in time. And I'm just wondering how you came upon that structure. Was there ever a moment in which you thought you were going to tell a more kind of clearly linear sequential story or, or was there something about the very trauma at the the heart of the novel that necessitated this kind of circling around it from various temporal vantage points yeah it, it's the last thing it's it's that there it it was necessary because i never i never wanted to but i also never was capable of actually writing the moment of may's death of the murder and part of that is that i I feel like, you know, like if I were to access Jenny's perspective, which I do about other things, that what happened was so far beyond herself and so awful. I just don't believe that memory could return to it in a, in a real way. And I felt like any, any attempt to actually be there would be not kind to the reader and also not real, like completely not real. And so I was very devoted to just letting it be. I also, I wanted to structure the book kind of in the way that I feel that memory works, which is very much influenced, as you said, by Alice Monroe, which is that like, 
you know, when I think of my own life, I think of how much I, I've forgotten, but within how much I've forgotten, there's these little islands of like perfectly pristine memories, kind of out, outside of context. I might not know how old I am in this moment or what's going on in my larger life, but this moment is crystal clear to me. And so Wade is losing his memories to early onset dementia. And, and yet there are things that if, even if he forgets the most important things in his life, you know, like he forgets that he had daughters at at a certain point, he, he still doesn't forget maybe a moment he had with his, his dog, you know, some moment that's not, not at all as important, but is given the same kind of importance because it's preserved. He, he remembers this girl from his past, this neighbor girl, and she becomes, you know, the delusion of a, um, of a daughter. And so I, I wanted to write in, in sort of a way that, that mimics the way that I understand memory to work. Yeah. And, and lest we give the listeners, I mean, it is, it is a dark novel in many ways, but it's also a kind of light filled novel. And there are these really beautiful of lyrical, almost like Wordsworthian spots of time throughout the book. Like I'm thinking in particular of the memory of May and June of playing together in the woods and being, you know, they're, they're trying to cool down during the summer and they cool down by hanging out in these barrels filled with, uh, with water. And at one point they're looking for, it's a, the cat who's escaped, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're looking for the cat who's escaped, and they and they've had a, a particularly fractious period in their sisterly relationship. And then there's this really lovely moment of pure love and attention between the two of them. And I can't remember. I think it's maybe that May sees the hair on June's nose in the sunlight. And yeah, that that's my favorite me- moment in the novel. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, that's great. Cause I mean, that, that strikes me as like, you were saying exactly how memory works, right? That there are these mm-hmm. crystalline moments that just embed themselves sensorially and kind of effectively in, in our souls. And there's kind of blankness all around them. But the novel, I think is a really powerful sense, not just for the kind of horrors of the past, you know, the, the trauma that lies at the center, but also these moments of great beauty, um, kind of emotional and sensory beauty. And I think that like you were saying, this is, you hope is in large part a love story. And I think the lo- you can find the love story in those lovingly attentive memories that May and June and Wade and Jenny and Anne all have. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I, you know, I, I did writing this book. I loved it. I, I love the people in it. And I, I wrote it as an act of love for my family, which is a strange thing to say, because it's about a fractured family in which terrible things happen. But it was, I wanted it to be a way of saying, this is how much I love my family. That sounds a little strange, but you know, I miss, I miss writing it. I miss being able to um, enter those moments. Like when the light lights up the hairs on her nose, it was, really wonderful to write. Yeah. Well, so you had mentioned Wade's early onset dementia. And I was just wondering, kind of again, a, a similar question, maybe like my earlier question, this was less kind of novelistic choice and just something that 
demanded to be part of the story. But I'm wondering about Wade's early onset dementia. And in particular, I'm, I'm wondering, there seem to me like two darknesses, two horrors at the center of the novel. And one is obviously Jenny's act, as we mentioned. And then the other is Wade's disease. And at a certain level, they seem to resemble one another in that they're both experiences that kind of fracture narrative or fracture story or fracture sense that Jenny's act to her doesn't make sense in that it doesn't flow with the story of who she is and and who she has been and who she will be. And the tragedy of, of Wade's disease is that, like you were saying, he loses the thread of his own story. He doesn't even remember at various moments that he had daughters. And so, again, I guess it's kind of a two-part question. Why or what were you interested in? What did Wade's disease, what kinds of questions did it allow you to explore? And then also just how do you think about, do you think about Wade's tragedy, the tragedy? Well, obviously Jenny's tragedy is also Wade's tragedy that he loses two daughters. But Wade's disease and Jenny's act, how you see those two horrors relating or echoing one another? Yeah, uh, that's um, a a great question. And I think that my answer is that um, both things sort of ask, who are we separate of the facts of ourselves? You know, Jenny is still Jenny, even though she has done this unthinkable thing, you know, that she still is Jenny. She's still the same person who the very day that she killed her daughter worried about whether her daughter would get snake bite or sunburn. She's still that same person. And Wade, once he loses the the narrative of his life, he doesn't know, he doesn't know his own story, but he's still Wade. And that's, I, I'm not really sure if it was a choice to give him early onset dementia, or if it was just something that emerged, I think it's probably just something more that emerged because I don't remember ever thinking like, Oh, I'm going to give him dementia. That's, that's not really how I write, but I think it just taught me a lot about dignity and people with Alzheimer's disease. Once they've gotten to a point where it seems as if they're, they're losing their their dignity or their humanity because they're not able to access their own stories. I just think they're still who they are, even if they don't remember. And just, you know, that that's very fascinating to me to be somebody separate of your own memories and just a human being. And I also thought, you know, in, in writing about him losing his memories, it was a way of writing about Anne's love for him because the memories that many of the memories he's losing are horrible memories, you know, and, you know, you might, you might think for a moment, well, at least he doesn't remember that his children were murdered, you know, and, and yet, you know, even once that fact of their murder is gone, that feeling of loss of something is still, I feel like it's just a part of his soul and his being. And so for Anne, who never knew his family to step in and and try to save these memories, even as awful as they are, is just um, her way of loving him and loving his family. Yeah. So it, so you mentioned Anne and and one of the essential kind of roles of Anne within the novel, besides 
being a, a really kind of interesting vocalizing character, uh, besides being precisely the person who enters into Wade's life after the tragedy and, and loves him and deeply and, and complicatedly, but, but deeply, she also introduces or helps introduce a motif, which is uh, music, which recurs throughout the novel. Uh, so she teaches music. And in fact, that's how she meets Wade. She meets Wade because Wade takes piano lessons. And there's, a, there's even a song that recurs throughout the novel that you've said your, your father uh, wrote himself. And I just wanted to read a, a short passage from late in the novel, where Anne is herself composing music and she thinks about music. And I thought that might help us to, to think about how you think about music in, in your own writing. Uh, so Anne thinks, meaning is like music. It catches and is carried. It returns, refrains, phrases, the names of passing boats, the way stories fasten themselves to words, word fasten themselves to vulnerable rhythms, impressionable tunes. So you mentioned the hair on the nose being your favorite moment in the novel. That's also one of my favorite moments. This passage is, is another one of my favorite moments. First of all, to go back to your own biography, what your own musical experience is, is like. I know, again, that your, your father has, has written music, has, has written songs, but what experience of music you have your, yourself and what role, if any, music plays in the compositional process for you? Are you listening for the music at the level of the sentence? Are you looking for music at the level of structure or is music something kind of important to what you're writing towards? Yeah, of course. And thanks so much for uh, reading that passage. I, I'm not a very musical person. I took piano lessons for years and years and <laughs> you, uh, you would not know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I care a lot about music and my husband's a beautiful pianist and, and my dad, you know, never learned to read music, but just playing his guitar up in the woods and singing these songs. And so it's something that I wish so much that I, I were good at, but I'm not. But finding music in language is something that I, I do pursue. And, you know, the, my novel, I've, I've muttered out loud to myself hundreds of times as I was reading writing it because it was the language, the music of the language was one of the most important things to me as a way of bringing some sense of an answer that the novel will not give in plot. There was a review of my book that said that the language is a, is a consolation. And I hadn't thought of it exactly that way, but when, once, once somebody else said that of, of the novel, I, I felt that it was very much true. Yeah, just sentence level music. It was something that just carried me through, and 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 it wasn't something that also came terribly naturally, but uh, something I, I really labored over, maybe more so than anything. And also knowing when it was too much, you know how to how to balance the ugliness of what occurred with with what I was, you know, hoping was beautiful language, and when to pull back. And I just wanted to be honest and never indulgent while still maintaining this poetic voice. Yeah. And, and so how long did you work on this novel for? About off and on 
well, at the start, I thought it was a short story. So I, I wrote the first chapter thinking it was a long, short story. And then there was a period of time after I wrote it in which I was working on other things. So, but uh, for about five years, I was working on it intensely. And then there was a little bit of a, of a sixth year in which I wrote that first chapter. Okay. And maybe to end things, would you mind telling us what you're working on now? Sure. I've, I've just begun another novel and this, it was, uh, I only just started it because it's been very difficult for me to let go of Idaho. I feel like in writing Idaho, I, I have said what I really wanted to say. And it was hard to find another story after that, you know, one that where I cared so deeply. And so I, I've, I'm, you know, I've only written actually a few paragraphs, but it's been going on in my mind for months. This, this new story, which also takes place in very Northern Idaho, more Northern than, than Idaho, the novel takes place. And it's about to grown sisters. And I'm, I'm not able to say much more than that, but I am excited to be writing again. I um, mentioned to you earlier, I have a baby. Um, and so I had thought that it would be so difficult to write again with a baby, but having a baby has just intensified the whole world <laughs> for me. And it's, it's true that the time, you know, finding time is, is, is a struggle, but I think having a child is, it's uh, going to make the process of writing my second novel so much, so different and so mm. interesting. Well, wonderful. And we all really look forward to, to reading it. Uh, Emily Ruskovich's book, Idaho, is available now in paperback. Um, Emily, thanks again so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much. I uh, really enjoyed talking with you. Great. Thanks for having me.